You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, Episode 23. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's episode features Manuel Kozer, the Managing Director and Co-Founder of Silvertree Holdings, a South African investment firm backing tech startups. You can connect with him at Manuel Kozer on Twitter. Originally from Germany, Manuel started his career as a consultant for the Boston Consulting Group, BCG. During an assignment in South Africa, he fell in love with Cape Town. Looking to relocate there permanently, he left BCG and co-founded Zando, South Africa's e-commerce fast fashion platform. After he stopped running the day-to-day operations at Zando, he helped to co-found Jumia Nigeria. In 2013, Manuel set up Silvertree Holdings, a holding company that invests and develops South African startups. Manuel was disenchanted with the large-scale, heavy-capitalized, and massive evaluation startup model that was epitomized by companies like Jumia. He wanted to take a radically different approach to his investment model that provided patient capital and the resources and mentorship to startup founders. We chatted about Manuel's early days at Zando, his involvement with Jumia Nigeria, and why the Silicon Valley model isn't a great fit for African startups. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Manuel Kozer. Manuel, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Victoria. So I want to trace the different milestones in your career because you've done some pretty amazing things over the last 10 years. But before that, tell us a bit about your background. How did you end up getting into Africa's e-commerce and moving to South Africa? It's a good question. Let me kind of retrace my steps a little. So I'm originally German. I was born in Aachen, so close to the Dutch-Belgian border. And kind of the travel bug caught me quite early on. My cousins from my mother's side are three to six years older than me. And they all did study abroad years. So they went all over the world. And I was very close to them. We spent like all of our Christmas skiing vacation together and summer vacation. So I got the kind of reports from them firsthand. So I kind of bugged my mother at, like, at the age of 11, 12 hey, I want to go overseas. So kind of at 13, my mom arranged for me to travel to Ireland. And kind of I spent two weeks there and kind of uh, followed those steps continuously. So at 16, I went to Australia and kind of at 17 to the US for like study abroad. And then when it came to uh, university, 
my cousin studied business, so I kind of I followed his steps a bit, and I didn't really know what to do. So I thought kind of a, a generalist degree is the right way to go, and I wanted kind of an international outlay. So I studied in Maastricht and in at Bocconi in Italy. Lots of travel, lots of international students, kind of very case study approach, so very practical. And when it came to career again, I was 20 at the time, so I was like, I don't really know what, I don't even know what sector I like or what function I like. And my cousin started three, four years earlier at McKinsey and kind of, again, I got the reports firsthand on how to get into consulting and how it is like. And I said, look, this sounds awesome. I like traveling. These consultants travel a lot. You see a lot of industries, a lot of functions, and it's like, again, a perfect starting point. You're a generalist. And yeah, I did an internship at BCG, enjoyed it. So firstly, the first probably eight weeks, I hated it. It was a terrible project. Which um, project was it? So I had a project with BCG in the insurance IT space. So we integrated two insurance companies. And in my layman terms, I was a glorified secretary. So I had to run like a project office and manage project streams and see if they're on time, on budget to be reintegrated. And I had like random numbers, which I didn't really understand what they were doing. Long hours and not really fulfilling or intellectually stimulating. But then after that, I had a very interesting project in London and a due diligence project for a private equity fund really enjoyed the team and the work and said, look, Germany at the time for the first year offered bachelor students to start working full time. And yeah, I said, look, I'll stay. Don't do my master's, which was very uncommon in Germany at the time because Germany didn't have a bachelor system yet. That was just Switzerland and the UK and the Netherlands had a bachelor master system. So it was still Diplom Kaufmann in Germany, which is like a four or five year program. So I said, look, cool. I don't actually know if I want to do a master's or where and I haven't really applied my mind to it. I was thinking actually of like a gap year and yeah, started at BCG and kind of had lots of projects all over the world. And that's how I came to South Africa for the first time with a big project at a mining company. And yeah, this is how I spent kind of the first six to nine months traveling back and forth between South Africa and Munich at the time. It was a very interesting project, very executive-driven, big transformation project. What year was that? That was in 2008, 2009. Kind of what made you fall in love with South Africa that made you want to move there later on? So a couple of elements. So I wasn't a fan of Johannesburg, to be quite frank. Like if you compare it to, like yes, it's vibrant in a South African context, and that's really where the business happens. But my benchmark was London and New York and Hong Kong because I've traveled there before. So it didn't have anything special, but Cape Town had. Like, so I spent either the weekends um, flying to Munich for the weekend and I had a girlfriend at the time in Munich. So I was flying back every week and then we broke up. So I spent the weekends exploring South Africa. So through the National Park or Cape Town for the weekend instead of flying back. And Cape Town, I think I have a rule that says whoever travels to Cape Town for the first time within 24 hours you fall in love and you start talking about how you can move here and to this day <laughs> the rule isn't unbroken the rule isn't broken so how many friends uh, or contacts uh, 30 40 or so like, what I, I lost, oh wow uh, okay yeah I lost count so I have a lot of friends that came visit or came by their travels I mean it's 
And yeah, it's a special place. The combination of nature, landscape, weather, food, winelands, mountain, sports activity is rare. So, and the reason I ended up in South Africa is because of Cape Town. So that's the kind of personal uh, element I optimized on where I want to live long term, where I feel it's sustainable to live rather than where is kind of the most hot money to chase. And that also helps stay sane in the kind of crazy entrepreneurial world, which is a roller coaster ride. And sometimes you feel like king of the world and sometimes like throwing everything, all your toys away and running away. So from that perspective, it was Cape Town and then at in 2011 so connecting back to bcg there were a guy i interned with uh, robert gens he declined to do his bcg job and rather become an entrepreneur at the e-commerce space so he first went to brazil and then he started a business called salando in germany which is now a 10 billion euro listed e-commerce shoe seller so the same, I connected back to Doth in 2011, and that was kind of the post-financial crisis. Lots of talent got set free. It was right after the emerging market bull run, or still in the emerging market bull run. So emerging markets were hot. E-commerce was hot. Zalando, Alibaba were like the hot topics mm. people talked about. At the same time, management consulting and investment banking just came out of the Great Depression. So like lots of talent was thinking about doing other things and yeah that's when kind of the same investors that backed Zalando early on were looking at investing in e-commerce businesses in emerging markets so I connected the dots and said look I'd like to do e-commerce in South Africa because I think if it's based out of Cape Town because I think one there's an opportunity and B I like living there so it doesn't matter if it if it fails or if I can't do this I'll have six months at the beach and I'll enjoy it and come back and lick my wounds and find a new job. But also if it works, it's great because it doesn't matter. I don't have time pressure to get out because I had lots of conversations with friends who would go to, I don't know, Indonesia or China, which from a market or Nigeria, from a macro perspective, are more attractive countries. Uh, they're more on vogue. Uh, they have in more interesting growth momentum, faster GDP growth. There's more capital chasing these opportunities. But if they were honest to themselves, they actually didn't enjoy living there. So they had a clock ticking and you could see that and uh, how they built their lives. And not only that, so like also how they conducted their business. Everything was like rushed to something. Yeah. And that doesn't really work when you're trying to no, found a startup. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. It works in these magical stories of Facebook and it works in these magical stories of Tencent, but they work in retrospect. They don't work when you look forward. They only work when you look backwards and you have the bias selection that they actually work. From that perspective, I said, look, this, I don't want to end up like that. I rather kind of like what actually makes me happy is being in a nice place, doing something I like, building, solving problems. And why do I need to be in a big market that is hyped? Like money is not my driver. Yes, you need a certain level to live comfortably, but it's not the main driver to collect more and more and more of this random number. Hence, why should I even consider going to these markets? Mm. So. Did you ever pass through kind of Germany startup scene in Berlin? 
Yeah, I have. So I looked at joining Salando early on, dismissed it. Probably I would still do the same call. I dismissed it for personal reasons rather than business reasons. I think the business reasons I dismissed it on was chaotic. And I saw how it developed, right? For me, it was the main drive why I kind of said I combined Cape Town with kind of this e-commerce trend was the development of the Berlin kind of ecosystem. Germans are also very, very kind of conservative. So 2007, 2008, when I came out of university and I went to Berlin for the first time, there was no startup scene, nothing. It's like Berlin was a city where you go as a politician. And that was it, basically, in my books, yeah, or to study. Probably those were the two circumstances. And then fast forward six, seven years, and you had Zalando's, Delivery Heroes, uh, larger companies pop up. You had people that made their first money that reinvested into the ecosystem. So, yeah, it's quite an interesting development. Mm. Was it then that you got connected with the Rocket Internet guys, or did that come later? No, that came connected through kind of my BCG years. A couple of the guys I kind of worked with at BCG went to Rocket Internet or started companies with them. So, but yeah, that's the connection. So your first startup was Zando, kind of your, you know, talking about kind of this fascination with e-commerce. You saw that the stars were aligning, that there was real appetite for e-commerce in emerging markets. So you kind of took that idea and ran with it and you set up South Africa's, was it really its first large retail platform? No, it wasn't its first. I think Naspers is obviously a home market to Naspers. So Naspers had outlets here. So there was Kalahari and Take Two at the time, and there was a fashion outlet as well. But Peter and I kind of met in Frankfurt. We knew we could get capital. Peter has been with McKinsey in South Africa for like nine months. So we said, look, we both like Cape Town. We both like the thesis. Consumers moving from offline to online. We kind of personally saw the success of consumers moving from offline channels to online channels. And could see the success of Salando and said, look, this is a great idea. Let's move to Cape Town and start Zando at the time, an online fashion business. We have capital to start. We'll figure it out. And luckily, we were oblivious. And that made it <laughs> blissful because it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. And we didn't understand the South African consumer that led into wrong buying decisions. I think there are still true religion genes in the warehouse at Zando that haven't turned because it's not really a branded market or branded consumer fashion market. It's fast fashion. It's kind of sold on credit. It's changing very quickly. It's very low price points. That's the bulk of the market. And there's a very small niche for, for, for branded fashion where we introduce brands that people didn't know kind of this analogy of, hey, it's sold on ASOS or Zalando, it must sell in South Africa, yeah. It sounds easy. If it sounds easy, it's very dangerous. So, yeah, it was wrong. And we have a couple of these kind of stories. So, But luckily, we were ignorant in this way because otherwise, if you overthink it, you're not going to end up doing it because you just end up seeing risks. Mm, that's um, very true. Very, very, because it was very risky what we did. Like, I mean, we figured out the biggest bulks. So we had capital. We wanted to work together and... We still work together and work well together. So, and kind of as a trusted partnership that way. So, I think those were the important pieces. And then the rest you figure out as you go. I would have done it, or if I would redo it, I would have done more market research and kind of approach things differently in execution. Like, what would you have done differently for execution? Yeah, lots of things. Like, the way how we built the business was this hyperspeed Silicon Valley way 
where you kind of, I don't know, running or not running, you're trying to fly. And there's no apparent reason why, besides that you want to be the biggest. But there wasn't really much local competition at the time. So we were, and we, we should have just stayed inwards and taken six months longer to launch, done better market research, better buying decisions. And But the way the business was started was this, hey, there's, we need to get world domination quickly, which means we need to show revenue quickly, which means we need to launch quickly, which means to sell quickly, let's turn on marketing. So you're premature, your product isn't perfectly matured. It probably will never be perfectly matured, but we probably were too early on uh, in some instances. And I think these extra two or three months challenging the concept a little would have done worlds to the product and would have made it a bit more capital efficient um, from that approach. And I mean, there's so many learnings on people, higher, slow, fire, fast, a culture can turn toxic very, very quickly, especially if you grow very quickly, you have to hire very quickly, which means you do lots of hiring mistakes and then you do them on the hiring, but you also do them on the firing because if you suddenly staff up, uh, so in South Africa, we staffed up 200 staff in six months. I think in Nigeria, when we launched, uh, we staffed up to a thousand people in six months or so. That's not sustainable. You can't build a culture like that. And it becomes very, very inefficient that way. So kind of a, a, a startup approach to look at a little bit more sustainable way to build and not just chase kind of the big checks and follow that game, rather build it bottom up, sustainable and make sure like all the elements are the right ones. That doesn't mean you should go slow, but kind of a sustainable, fast pace. Mm, kind of, and that begs the question, how do you create kind of a sustainable startup culture? So when Peter and I decided to leave, we said, look, we believe in... And consumers. leaving Zando? Yeah, operationally, we said, look, this is great, but the journey shareholders want to take the business on is a very different one to where we want to take the business. They wanted to continue with kind of this hyper growth, high risk, high burn rate type approach for which you need the market to pick up quite quickly and you need to show revenue growth quite quickly. And, and let me jump in here. Who were the shareholders? So this now Jumia Group. So that's MTN now Rocket Internet, Goldman Sachs, AXA, Blakeney. It's a bunch of financial sponsors, mostly, who want to kind of build the Alibaba of Africa. Um, so lots of country expansion, lots of vertical expansion, lots of kind of revenue push. And we said, look, that is a strategy, but it's, I think, not the strategy for us. It's very risky. It's very money burning. And I think nothing we kind of could get behind. And we said... Let's, we believe in this thesis, but I believe in a different approach. And our approach was, hey, we want to build businesses that are definitely not as fast growing, but they are a lot more capital efficient, a lot more sustainable. So if a downturn comes or if this magical money bucket gets turned off and you need to live on your own kind of earnings, you can. Yeah. So that was always important to us. So we started off with our own kind of savings, whatever we had for the first two years. So it was Peter and myself. And then we said we need a, someone that has a bit more experience in tech. And that was Paul. And Peter and Paul worked at McKinsey together. So we said, cool, 
I need someone that can understand every vertical. So Peter always is a mechanical engineer, so you always overtook the operational topic, very, very numeric, very detailed oriented. I always oversaw the marketing topics and then Paul the, the tech topics. So we could be functional experts in the specific functions of any kind of business we would launch or back ultimately and support startups that way because capital wasn't enough. Uh, I think it's functional expertise and operational excellence. And for that, you need kind of experience to do it. So the three of us said, hey, let's start. Started the first two years with our private capital and just tried a lot. Yeah, like advice startups, started our own, like uh, invested in some, uh, did a lot of mistakes again, but was with our kind of capital. And the model that came out of it through lots of trial and error and mistakes was kind of an industry holding approach. Um, we have a permanent capital base, so a balance sheet that we can invest, which that means we don't have time pressure predominantly our capital and family offices. We kind of focus on kind of old school entrepreneurship and approaches how I can explain it to my mother. It's like I would go to a bank, borrow money, start a business. The business makes money. I pay back the loan and then I'll make profits that I can pay back to shareholders or I reinvest in the business if I think I can grow faster rather than this typical venture approach. And there are lots of kind of opportunities that you can build that way from a capital perspective, but they need support, meaning we now have a 25 people operating platform that help our entrepreneurs we partnered with to grow. So that's anything from legal to finance to accounting to tech development. Um, so kind of lots of functional deep dives with mm. group deals on the group. Our capital is very patient. That doesn't mean we want performance, but our performance would track in the P&L versus a venture capitalist most often in the early stage tracks their performance on a balance sheet meaning they think about next round and can i get a markup on the last round and sometimes what happens is the balance sheet view gets detached from the pnl view and that makes sense if you have like very high-end tech or if you have a huge market i mean you could see that snapchat could ipo at billions of dollars with hardly any revenue but these kind of outcasts that exist you will hardly find in such a kind of individual small markets they are hard to reach yeah no absolutely and we're gonna dive more deeply into your model i want to back up and kind of give some background to kind of what we're talking about here so this was in 2013 that you set up silver tree right yes okay before we talk more deeply about Silvertree. Just I want to go back to kind of when you left Zando and Jumia, because I always find it a bit confusing, kind of the narrative of Jumia, because you're right, it did kind of turn into this kind of Africa's retail behemoth. It's in so many countries. It has a lot of capital. If I understood correctly, you set up Jumia in Nigeria after you left Zandu, no? No, no. So the narrative is the following. The same shareholders that backed Zandu wanted a Pan-African exposure. So they said, look, I'll back the structure, but it's a Pan-African e-commerce story. So the plan was always to launch companies with this capital. It couldn't be called Zandu because Zandu.com wasn't available. So we set up two entities. One was Kasua, one was Sabunta. Kasua was the general merchandise outlet and Sabunta was the fashion outlet, which then merged into Jumia because you needed one brand to roll out throughout Africa. 
and the reason fashion and general merchandise weren't on the same platform in Germany or the US was because the fashion brands didn't want to be associated with the general merchandise. They wanted a dedicated platform because they wanted special treatment or tech-wise it was more difficult, which wasn't the case in Nigeria. So it made sense to merge it and then you could build one brand to roll out throughout Africa as one brand. So there was, a I don't know, there were three, four people co-founding Sabunta. There were three, four people co-founding Kasua, which then became Jumia. Staff turnover and involvement was very high because Nigeria is a tough place to be in. So, yeah, that was part. Of, so we launched Zando in Jan 2012. And June, we launched, I moved to Nigeria back and forth to Cape Town from April, I think, or so, for six, nine months. And then there was a local management team that took over. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Because, yeah, I always kind of wondered what was the origin story kind of of Jumia. And would you say that kind of your experience with Zando and Jumia, did that really shape your unique approach with Silvertree? No, I think it's lots of elements that shaped it. I think there's always a personal risk appetite involved in how you approach it. So Jumia is an approach that has its clear benefits and also clear drawbacks. So, but it's what fits the actual people on the ground and what do you see as an opportunity? And what we, our risk appetite was, we like Cape Town means we don't need to run away. So in Nigeria, I would want to run away because it's a very hostile place. I wouldn't feel at home, uh, but that's my kind of personal impression. And then we saw an opportunity in the market that we knew has a different risk reward profile. So meaning, yes, I might not grow as fast and have this huge upside, but I have a lot lower risk by just backing lots of entrepreneurs in their different niches. And you can help them operationally, give them capital. And that way you can kind of build a sustainable winner in a category without that upside risk, which is very, which often is dependent on kind of a big buyer taking you out or a stock market exit that kind of believes the narrative. Mm -hmm. And the markets are very fragile and they can turn tomorrow, which exactly happened. Nigeria turned. In 2012, it was, Africa was still on the economist run of title stories, the next kind of the best century for Africa. Nigeria was super hyped. There was a lot of capital chasing it. Yeah. And then it, then you had hyperinflation, <laughs> currency half. You have lots of lots of political issues that popped up. And you had South Africa as a steady decline over those years. So it wasn't really the best time to start anything. And this can keep happening. They're not bulletproof economies, very fragile. The market we are operating in is nascent, meaning it sits at 1% penetration. So again, one law change and suddenly the whole market falls apart. That can all happen. And one tends to forget this as a professional risk taker. So kind of we had this long-term thinking approach, not a one month, two months or approach towards how can I raise the best and most amount of capital. That wasn't ever a success story or key KPI for us. For us, it was how much money do we need to put in to generate so much in revenue and slash later EBITDA rather than uh, for what story or narrative can I raise how much money because with that money then I can build something and then I worry about revenue and EBITDA later. We always have that kind of approach. Would you say um, that's the Silicon Valley model? Kind of yeah, build like, it and they will come. 
Yeah, exactly. That's the Silicon Valley approach. It is. It makes sense where you have lots of good talent, where you have a big, big market and lots of capital. The only thing really missing is a product that fits that market. And that's the Silicon Valley approach, right? Have an idea, you combine capital, you know you have a big market, capital is so readily available, and you start a couple of these things and you know there is a huge upside because you'll get follow-on capital, you know you can sell to a corporate or list if you get big enough, or corporate buys you out. Even at the early stage, you know there's a secondary market to sell off. So that's an approach that works in that specific ecosystem. Already, Berlin is different. Every single ecosystem is different. So Africa should also be different. And the market isn't big. Like The addressable market is very, very small. Yes, Nigeria has roughly 200 million people. But which of those have payment systems to actually pay? Which of those can I actually reach yeah, right now physically yeah, because they don't live in the outskirts? I mean, Nigeria doesn't have a postal code system. So it's already like more costly to get there. Like Yes, it's getting better and better. The same narrative about South Africa. Like how many people can actually afford to shop at an e-commerce store online? Because most likely you won't be a price leader because the physical retailer around the corner has better scale, meaning he has better purchasing power, means he can offer a better price. And he operates for 20 years. So the question always becomes, like, can you build a product that is 10 times better than the next best alternative? And in Nigeria, you might not have formal retail, but you have informal retail, you have markets, they do gray imports. So the same narrative counts, and it's culturally ingrained in Nigeria as it is culturally ingrained in South Africa. I mean, I think South Africa is the second highest mall density in the world after Dubai. It's Oh, wow. I didn't know that. People see mall as entertainment because your cinema is there, the restaurant, and then you do shopping. That's your Saturday entertainment. That's how it's been for 20 years uh, or 30 or 40 years. I don't exactly know. And even if you have, like if it's more convenient, even your price point is better or slightly or your range to change a culture approach or consumer habit takes time and you need to be significantly better in order to force someone to change his or her behavior i still take the same route to work as i got used to it's not the fastest not the prettiest way to how i can get to work it's just the one i'm used to and i often and i can drive it home like blacking out but to change my behavior is very tough and it's ingrained because I'm used to it. It's not rational whatsoever why I go to work that way. And kind of the, you have, and we had a very rational approach always in the beginning. It said yes, but we put it online. We have the biggest range and you get it shipped to home. You don't need to go to the mall and it's crazy and so on and so forth. But there's only a certain portion of customers that is ready yet. And really understanding the market size of people that are, who are readily available to switch that's a key component to then understand how much can I invest. And that market's always smaller than you think because the 50 million of South Africa suddenly become three and a half. Right, yeah, it comes down to purchasing power. Yeah, purchasing power is probably the biggest one. But, I mean, there are seven and a half million South Africans with a taxable income north of 500,000 rand. So that's roughly $35,000. Wow, yeah, the pool gets um, pretty shallow. Very, very small. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very small suddenly. So can I build a product for someone that doesn't have much disposable income? And then I look at kind of my product selection versus where else could I go to spend my fashion spend? And suddenly you realize there are offers out there 
that are way more competitive because if I don't have much disposable income, I'll optimize on price points and perceived value. So the retailer that's a bit out but gives bulk specials or the off-season retailer are the better outlets suddenly. Expanding on, you know, on what you're talking about and how your model is very different, you were featured in a Venture Burn article recently in which you said, hey, the Silicon Valley model does not work in Sub-Saharan Africa and where you really advocated for your approach, which, you know, as you've touched upon, you know, it's I don't know if you would say it's really kind of a hybrid between a VC model and an incubator. That's kind of how it's been described. Yeah true in my world. So I think the venture capital model doesn't work yet in emerging markets. It will work, but it might only work in 30, 40 years. And it will be a slightly different way how it's executed. But my argument is, so you have a very, very small market. So, and as a VC fund, I'm an asset manager. It means my first priority is I need to have assets under management of a certain size in order to break even with my operations. So that break-even point is somewhere between 25 and $50 million. So that means as soon as I speak to a VC, which is below $25 million, he's definitely not sustainable. His business not sustainable. The GP doesn't make money from his fees that he gets out of his business. means he can't pay himself proper salaries, he can't do proper due diligence, and he sits on a burning platform because he has opportunity cost. That's problem number one. Also, your incentives, yeah, if his incentive is to get to $25, $50 million quite quickly, his incentive is different. Yeah? He will want an entrepreneur to take risk as quickly as possible so he can upmark his portfolio, he, they can raise more money into the company in order to upmark your book, to show returns, to raise the next fund. Yeah? Then the second, the next issue is you have a finite timeline. A VC fund has his seven years plus timeline. So who knows what 2025 if that is Nigeria two or three years ago or South Africa two years ago, it's a terrible time to exit, but you have to. And then starting off with a fund of $10 million, who then probably will write $500,000 checks into several companies, these companies will be small, meaning who, when you have to sell them in seven or eight years, they're not going to be a billion-dollar companies. They probably will not even be $100 million companies. There will be tens of millions of dollars. It's very unlikely that someone will pay an irrational purchase price, like Snapchat would be an irrational purchase price for me, for a business that's tens of millions of dollars, most likely you will not have specialized IP that is unique in the whole wide world. You will have solved an African problem, a South African problem with a South African solution, a Nigerian problem with a Nigerian solution. But most likely you can't transfer it globally. It's very, very rare. You can't bet on it. So nobody's going to pay a premium for that. So mm. then you look at how much does a private company in South Africa, sell for yeah, seven to ten times EBITDA. Most likely, you would have raised money at, I don't know, some Silicon Valley convertible note valuation, which is completely overpriced. If my finite exit price is $10, 20000000 million, and I invested two, yeah, <laughs> that's the winner. I make as the VC fund four times my money. That's not good enough yeah, because I lose six of my investments because they go bankrupt. And then two or three pay back my money and my winner pays back four times my money. That's then not a success, meaning I don't raise another fund. Uh, means I don't, I have not made money. And then it's the question around what do I, like the ecosystem is very young, meaning 
the VC manager you'll meet is a first-time VC manager. He's not doing this for 20, 30 years. So he's also doing it for the first time, meaning he does the mistakes because he doesn't really know yet how things work. The entrepreneur does it for the first time because it's a first-time entrepreneur environment and their incentives aren't aligned, meaning the VC's incentive is gather assets and get fees. The entrepreneur is, hey, I want to build a sustainable business and exit it for the best price, but I have, this is my, 99% of my wealth is in my company, so I want risk-adjusted returns, and I don't want to kind of bet everything in a roulette style. I'd rather take kind of very cautious decisions. And then that's on the capital side, and exit, timeline, etc. The other big topic is as it's first-time entrepreneurs, you need more than capital, a lot more than capital. You need support, like why an ecosystem like Silicon Valley kicked off, and I could see it in Berlin, is successful first-time entrepreneurs reinvesting the proceeds of their labor into young aspiring entrepreneurs that just started off. And they write an angel check and help really, really kind of on detailed level and say, hey, don't do this mistake, strategically watch out for this. Here's a cool employee I used to work with. He should join your team. When it comes to your legals, I've worked with these guys. Don't touch those. This is how much you should spend. This is how you should structure your business from a tax perspective, etc., etc. And suddenly you take a lot of friction out of the kind of entrepreneurial journey because you have someone by your side who done exactly what you've done and is successful. So you should listen to him and kind of he can point you into a direction because as the ecosystem isn't developed, which is not the case in any African country yet, the ecosystem of being an entrepreneur. So you don't know what funders to turn to. You don't know what are the right legals or law firms to work with. What are the right kind of recruitment firms or the right kind of suppliers I should work with or the right advisors, there's a lot of variance in quality and in price points. Means if you end up with the wrong people, that will cost you dearly because the quality of the ecosystem hasn't equalized and it's very hard to tell who can I trust and who are the right people to work with, with which kind of quite quickly happens in a kind of bigger ecosystem. So I think for me, the summary means venture capital in a different type structure as a GPLP fund will work. But when? I don't know. Right now, the odds are against you. I would, like we debated very often to start a VC fund. Yeah, it sounds attractive. But actually, if you play through with the economics, and most people actually don't do this, and actually think about the guy I'm talking to, like, how does he make his money? Like, what are his incentives? Is what he is doing the right approach? Um, and ultimately, immediately, as you say, you kind of help in the ecosystem, you say you're a fund. And it's actually not the case. So mm. our approach is old school entrepreneurship. It's like industry, it's an industry holding that invests in new ventures and new entrepreneurs sustainably long term and we don't want to sell anything we want to build brands that are winners in their category we want to help entrepreneurs to grow personally and with their business and we want to get economies of scale across the portfolio and that's a sustainable approach because as soon as i start a business with a need to exit i'm dependent on the exit and there is no liquidity in that market yeah that's so true it's too thin and like it's, you, very, very, yeah. it's very, very thin. There is no follow-up capital. Yeah, there are a couple of funds 
in the space, but they're all willing to write two, three hundred thousand dollar checks and then hope this magical pot of money will appear that does the series A, B, C. And you have these cases like Junior was able to raise a lot of money. You have a couple of those, but for a couple of those, you have hundreds that failed. And the question still is, raising a lot of money is no success. Nobody has made any money yet. Yeah, This is, you can play. Money is made when you list or when you sell the business or when you pay out dividends. Like, that's not a cause of celebration for me. Actually, for me of being on the entrepreneurial side, so I also thought, yes, we raised a lot of money. Amazing. But actually, as you kind of as the dust settles and you realize what that actually means for you, it's daunting because now I'm 100 meters behind the wave um, (laughs) and I need to try to catch it because money comes with strings attached. Now I have a valuation that is huge. Markets will come back to equilibrium, right? So you look at, okay, what does a retailer trade at at the public markets in Africa? Ah, 0.5 times to one times revenue. Ah, I trade at five, six, seven times revenue. I'm loss-making, they're profitable. Like maybe I catch a slightly higher multiple. I'm at the one to one and a half times because I grow faster and I have a more capital-efficient model at scale, but I'm not at scale yet. I'm loss-making. No, it seems like a huge burden to have all of that cash. Yeah. No, it's a huge burden. So, and then you kind of end up spending, like spending it quickly is easy. The question is, do you spend it wisely and sustainable? So actually you're generating that value and... Yeah, cash is one part. The other part is experience. The other part is the right team, the right culture, the right business model you developed, being open to changing and adapting it slightly. So there's a big topic here. So our approach changed towards, look, we take this whole topic around. We'll back an entrepreneur. We give you the right amount of capital. If you need more, we can provide you more. But we always look at capital efficiency. So we track how much money we put in versus kind of how much revenue you generate. We make sure like you build the right team culture. We help you. We are your core entrepreneur. We don't have a finite timeline of when we need to sell. We can get economies of scale by combining a couple of companies operationally where it makes sense to make sure you're suddenly in a bigger market. We have an operating platform on the silver tree side. There's a lot of exchange so actually what we've created is in the absence of a tech ecosystem we created one which is our own ecosystem which we think we can rely on it's the core entrepreneurs we invested in it's our operating platform it's our kind of capital know-how it's the marketing channels we know that work so lots of engraved dna Mm. lots of kind of skills you can rely on and kind of suppliers we've worked with and Obviously, that has its ups and downs as well, but it's very, it's, it's a lot clearer to me that you can win in that structure than in a structure where I'm still dependent on the ecosystem and I have someone that I partner with who can only provide me the first $250,000 check, but already knows in seven years I need to get out. And in between, you need to take as much risk and build as a large business as possible just so I can get out of it. Yeah, uh, that's very that risky. Sense. Yeah, it's a very risky, risky approach. So, if I were, if I mean, I am an entrepreneur. Like my value I create is created entrepreneurially, meaning share price, there are no fees, etc. I rather partner with someone that has the same incentives and sits in the right, in the same boat as me and steers and pedals in the same direction as me, than someone that just tries to make money off me and has only upside and no downside. 
Mm, no, that makes sense. Well, tell us a bit about your portfolio companies. So we have Faithful to Nature, started by Robin a bit more than 10 years ago, probably the largest organic green retailer, online retailer in South Africa. Robin started it moving back from the UK and couldn't find products that were actually tested properly and couldn't find a wide variety in the offline retail space. So essentially created a platform for producers of organic honey or beauty creams that are produced by a small family somewhere um, to sell to the, the masses or the market. And she did it in a very kind of sustainable way meaning she checked every single product, the supply chain uses recycled boxes, no plastic is involved, the content is very specialized towards, hey, I want to become a vegan or I am a vegan, what products can I use and what are my tricks to kind of other kind of illnesses or kind of lifestyle diseases and kind of the whole product philosophy goes that way. I have about 11,000 SKUs, so quite a huge variety of products, mostly South African produced and yeah, ship to consumer, very loyal customer base, very vocal consumer base, very mission-driven company. You can see that in culture, team, etc. And we have Ucook as a meal delivery meal kit delivery business started two years ago grown tremendously and it's a kind of a south african kind of take on the meal delivery kit so in the execution quite different to a hello fresh or blue apron mm. uh, again it's the organic ingredients it's sustainable so they source from an organic farm in the township so you're giving back to the community plus it's organic letters mm. very high quality standards when it comes to the inputs and uh, what about your companies in ghana or kenya or nigeria so ghana and kenya we closed down that didn't work out why was that and it's a combination of a couple of things there's some internal topics because i mean we're south africa based south africa experienced markets are different if you want to run an operating platform, you need to be on the ground. So to what degree does it make sense to fly to Ghana or be in Ghana for three, four weeks and a month in order to help the business to grow? How much growth can I get there versus how much can I get in South Africa? So that's the internal conversation. If you run an operating platform, you need to be on the ground and really understand the market, which we couldn't see the growth happening from a revenue perspective versus mm. I think... 5% more growth on Faithful to Nature turns more return than the other side. Okay. and But are you still in Nigeria? We've sold back the business to the founder. So a similar conversation for us. So Ghana and Kenya were closed. And Nigeria, the founder bought our stakes up and said, I'm going to run with this on my own. Was it the kind of right inflection point for him? And for us, it was the same logic around, can I actually create operational value. If I want to do that, I need to be on the ground, I build team, I build expertise, because they're not that many, like there are a couple of topics you can move in the same learning I had personally from starting Zando and starting Sabunta, which then became Jumia. There are a couple of topics that you can transfer from one market to the other, but they're actually a lot less than you'd think because the ecosystem is quite different. So what marketing channels work? Yeah, what uh, logistics provider to work with, yeah? how to source product, how to recruit talent, what is the kind of right benchmark of talent you should work with is very, very different. 
in South Africa than it is in Nigeria. So the only way to really become an expert, the only way to become an expert in that is you be on the ground. And again, trade-off for us, hey, one of us moving to Nigeria or be there often, that's the cost attached to it, that's the revenue we can generate uh, and the size versus I do, I focus on the South African businesses we have we just get so much more out of it because mm-hmm. our driver is long-term P&L growth. It's not, hey, I need to tell a big story that I'm Pan-African or sell this as a hot potato to the next investor. We care that this is a sustainable business that generates profits at some stage and fixes or solves a problem. And that's lots of lots of kind of grindy work on the ground. And you need to be long-term committed to a market. So at that stage, we said, look, probably makes the founder offer to buy us out. So we're very heavily South Africa focused um, for now. I think that might change down the line. No, but it but seems, I, yeah, it seems very much a part of your ethos. Yeah, exactly. So like you need to be consistent. And in that case, we weren't consistent. We had a, a partner in these businesses who was already on the ground for a couple of years. So we thought... You know, them being on the ground and experience in the market, plus us with e-commerce experience, a couple of fly-ins, a couple of centralizations will do the trick, and they didn't, Mm. um, to really kind of unlock value. And one of the kind of biggest learnings for me in this market is you really, really need to be on the ground and you really need to be in the details, be involved where it matters consistently and become an expert yourself. You are a core entrepreneur in that topic in order to guarantee that you actually deliver on the vision because markets are different, the markets are volatile and fast changing. So that's the only way. And the question is, can we build platform in Nigeria now? Is it worth it? Are there enough businesses we and entrepreneurs we can help? And the answer for us was no. And the same for Ghana and the same for Kenya. And then rather kind of make sure the South African piece works or keeps working as it is and expand that. And then it's maybe in a year, maybe in three, maybe never we revisit the conversation. Yeah. But it's literally moving to a new country. And we, I probably did the mistake now twice, is starting from scratch. You know? Like between starting Zendo in South Africa and starting Jumia in Nigeria, I had 5% I could leverage, 95% I had to learn from scratch. And the same counts for our story around Deal Day, Wupu, and Tiso. Yeah, there were the same business models. And these were other portfolio companies? Those were the three portfolio companies okay. in Nigeria, Ghana, and Kenya. The same story applies here. Yes, they were similar business models, but the markets are fundamentally different. What they sell is fundamentally different. The marketing channels are different. The team is different. Right. It's like, And that is very, very complicated. And the only way in order to guarantee it is you're there 24-7 in the details and kind of build it that way. Yeah. We couldn't offer that. Kind of that's the harsh learning we learned it twice. I hope we don't learn it a third time. <laughs> well, um, at some point you need to learn from your mistakes, right? Exactly. So same learning. We said, look, cool. We're already in different business models in South Africa where we support entrepreneurs. So now we're also in different markets, but we're not present. That just can't work. So I'd love to know if you could go anywhere else in Africa to learn and improve your business. Where would you go and why? I know you're very attached to South Africa, <laughs> but is there 
somewhere else where you feel like it would give you some exposure and make you think differently. And with that knowledge, you could come back and grow your business. There are great places to go to like Nigeria that really challenge your thinking and take you out of your comfort zone. For me, it was going to Iran was one of those places that take you out of your comfort zone. And it's great to be there for a week. I'm not sure how much actually is applicable for our South African context. So I'm not sure how much that helps actually. A week travel often helps to challenge your thinking, to re-energize, to look at things differently. Right, or even more broadly. Yeah, kind of re-energize me or kind of make me look at things differently. It would be Nigeria, Iran, the US, and Japan. Like, probably these countries, not a lot is probably at the end of the day applicable to the local market, but it still gives you the spectrum and tells you where in the world you are, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of quality of talent, where am I versus Iran, versus the US, versus Japan, versus Nigeria? Okay, cool. So I can now steer this a little bit and say, hey, this is what a good product manager looks like. Okay, if I've met a product manager in Silicon Valley who runs Airbnb's product, and I compare that to what is called a product manager in Nigeria or South Africa, these are completely different things. So that's really, really helpful. So you have a common kind of language and understanding if you talk to investors or if you talk to talent that is global. And the same counts for other topics like reporting or how you run a supply chain. You've seen how Salando runs their supply chain or how Alibaba runs their supply chain versus how the supply chain is run at one of our businesses, they are completely different things. Mm. Yes, they're not really comparable because different markets and different business sizes, but it helps you to aspire to something. Mm. So either you go fast forward in the world or you go kind of backwards in terms of size and you see different ecosystems, how they solve different solutions. And I think that helps you to know where in the world you are in the packing order. And you can say, hey, cool, this is, we solved kind of differently or better or, oh, they are like miles ahead of us in this market because they're bigger. So let me rethink a specific problem. Mm. And it's eye opening to see how Amazon is run or Alibaba is run then you actually know why this is doing so well, like Mm. the machine, from a culture perspective, from a process perspective, etc. What were the last couple of books that left an impression on you? What were the last couple of books? So I liked a lot the story of the 3G founders. It's the story how they built up 3G capital as entrepreneurs. It's called Dream Big. Three Brazilian founders. Very hard to get book, but it's a book that kind of Early on in kind of uh, Silver Tree days, uh, we handed out to all our co-entrepreneurs we've all read. Okay. Were there other books that you kind of regularly handed out to your portfolio companies? Yeah, I think this one for sure. And then a couple of books that came in as when we got in contact with people or we met people. I think the one we've handed out the most was Dream Big. And it's quite fitting as well to the approach uh, we take. Yeah, It's more the Warren Buffett, 3G Capital approach than approach of a Silicon Valley ecosystem on how you build a business. Mm. So that's probably the one that kept the lasting impression on me. Okay. And if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, what would it be? Raise your prices. Can you expand? So you only know if you have a product that solves a problem significantly better than the alternative if as you raise your prices of your product customers stay 
So, and it, it sounds a bit confusing at first sight. And I don't mean it literally. Maybe even do it as a thought experiment or do it on a cohort. But very often you stick to building a business in a Silicon Valley approach, which means you raise a lot of VC money and you build a product and you give it to your customers for free or below market price and then you show user growth. Of course, if I'm doing a trade and I'm being a bit facetious between you and I, where I give you a dollar twenty and you give me a dollar back, we would do this ad nauseum. You <laughs> would never stop, right? So right. like essentially what you're doing, if you raise a lot of VC money and you're giving a product for free or you give it way below market value, you're acquiring customers who just see this as a value trade. And of course you get users and you hope you they stay and they like your product and the bigger you get, the better your processes and your systems and your offering, and then actually customers will end up paying for it. But at some stage, you actually need to check. And the ultimate check for me, if you've built something that people like, and there are a couple of these kind of examples, if you would increase the price of 10% or 20%, would you switch? If the answer is, and for me, if the answer is, yes, I would switch, then probably your product isn't as good as you think. And it's very, very, very fragile towards competition and new entrants. And you should relook at how can I re-engineer my product in order for customers not to switch. So my advice, raise your prices. Mm, that's great counterintuitive advice. I love that. Emmanuel, where can our listeners follow you on social media? So the Twitter handle is at Manuel Cosa and LinkedIn. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Manuel. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, great for having me. Thanks. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcasts. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, young African entrepreneur.